0: not sure how I'm going to follow that introduction and live live up to it in any way at all, or indeed follow Daniel's excellent session this morning. So I'm thrilled to be here with you again. Um, I was here last year, as some of you were, and as I flew away across a white-covered countryside, I was uh, concerned that some of you might have had a bit of an involuntary extension to your stay here. Actually getting home looked very, very challenging, because for those of you who weren't here, it was very, very deep snow. Glad to see you did make it home and you have actually come back, many of you. We're very, very excited about Scotland. I'm excited about Scotland all the time, to be honest, because it is amongst the nations within the UK and Ireland, by far the most beautiful, uh, a place that I I come alive being here in this country. It's just uh, wonderful. I'll be back again on my motorcycle in June going right up to the northwest tip again. Um, But more than that, more than just the nation and the beauty of it, what is happening here in Scotland is really quite wonderful. There is life here, very evidently, momentum. And, you know, in a chemistry lab, I used to love chemistry at A-level, and you get to mix stuff and get flasks of this and that. And if you mix these things, you can. there's all this potential in there, and then what it needs is a catalyst. And you pop the catalyst in there, and suddenly things begin to fizz and buzz and sort of bubble up and and uh, life that was inherently there comes to the surface and you can even have stuff which is explosive just stuff starts, starts exploding everywhere life is happening the potential was all there but it needs a catalyst and I think the the catalyst vineyard is aptly named and is having an influence here in Scotland. Chuck and Taryn uh, bring an ingredient to the mix here in Scotland, neither of them being Scottish but somehow God us placed them here, and this ingredient is causing the potential that was always here to fizz, to buzz, and hopefully uh, our prayer is that it will explode across this nation, yeah. the kingdom of God, the advance of the gospel, and Scotland will be utterly transformed because of you in this room, and many others who are not yet here as well. It's uh, great that they have said yes to being regional leaders for Scotland, and to being on the national team, the Vineyard Leadership Group, so we get to spend quite a lot of time now with them. And uh, they bring, I mean, they're like a couple of dynamos, aren't they? They don't really stop, you know? It's like, oh my goodness, I thought, couldn't we just have a bit of a break and a bit of a rest and and just cruise for a little while on the momentum we thought we had? Oh no, you know what it's like, but uh, absolutely wonderful. And uh, so we're thrilled to serve alongside them in this wonderful family. We're going to look this morning at the subject of leadership. I'm not going to preach so much as give you some thoughts on the subject of leadership. And um, when I ask you to think, just visualize a leader, like a typical, really capable, able leader. What, What comes to your mind? You're probably seeing a picture of an individual, someone perhaps like Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela or Nicola Sturgeon. You see how I got them all just doing that? with. Or perhaps you just automatically think of Chuck. Yeah. Or even more of Taryn. Yeah. Somewhat unskillfully edited this week from a photograph I took of them a couple of years ago at an address all the previous people I've mentioned had, had frequented. We can often think of leaders as something other than what we're like. I mean, many of you in the room here might think, I know there are quite a lot of capable people here, people with leadership, gifting and potential and ability, but I'm not sure I'm really one of them. Because we have this picture that they've got to be really charismatic, very powerful personalities, confident, clever people. And uh, many of you probably do that, fit that description. But, you know, people who are kind of born with leadership who from their earliest years were influencing others, were often drawing a following. But it's not by any means that way for everybody, and it certainly wasn't for me. I was a bit of a late developer. And so I'm just going to give you a bit of sort of autobiographical um, information before we get into the real content of this. You can often spot leaders. I mean, are leaders born or are they trained? Well... I don't subscribe to either, actually, that God puts gifts in people and then he draws them out as people say yes and they follow his leading and so on. But uh, often you can spot the leader in the playground at infant school because usually that person is louder than other people. They may be physically larger sometimes, but they've got a personality uh, and they, if, when they want to play football, suddenly everyone is interested in playing football. Apparently, we, And then, they, oh, they want to go on the climbing frame. Apparently now everyone is really into going on the climbing frame. So you can spot that very early on. I wasn't that. In secondary school, there's a hierarchy built within the uh, class, within the form, and certainly with the male of the species, it's based on how hard you are. I was short and skinny, no good at fighting. I was a Christian goody-goody, didn't steal things, smoke things, or vandalize things, and I, and I was uh, scared of fighting, so I, I would generally either talk my way out of it or run. <laughs> so um, I found myself at the very bottom, and next to me at the very bottom of the class was a, a five-foot guy who was pretty irritating, actually, but basically because of his ethnicity, he was persecuted, and being a Christian, I befriended him and loved him and was the only person who spoke up for him, and therefore that sealed my fate as being at the very bottom of the pile. Now, John Mimmy used to say, you can tell whether you're a leader, it's not about whether you've got a title or a position, but if you look over your shoulder, there'll be people following you. Whenever I looked over my shoulder, there was no one, ever. Uh, I was either following the pack or I was exhibiting the one leadership quality that I did have consistently through my childhood, and that was the ability to stand alone which is often where I was. I was very quiet, an introvert. Uh, If I I didn't need to speak, I didn't, basically. And I used to go out for Debbie. uh, We'd go to the pub with her friends, and they were all hugely entertaining artists and uh, sculptors and so on. and, And they would just talk and talk and talk. Talk great stories, really amusing. And I would sit there and listen. That's what I did, listen. And on one occasion, one of them said to Debbie, does your boyfriend ever speak? Because in a whole evening, I had not said anything to anyone. That was my comfort place, really. And yet, leaders are supposed to be communicators. Uh, my natural tendency was to be silent. Leads are, leaders often influence others through words. They probably read loads of books and get loads of words, and then they regurgitate them really wisely, and they influence through painting word pictures and so on. I hated reading books. I never even read my set text for my English O-level and as a result, failed it. it was only, one, one was about that thick, Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> I didn't get around to reading it, because I hated reading. So for me, words was not a big thing. I was a jeweler, I was a craftsman, and so the irritating thing about running a jewelry shop and making commissioned pieces for people was you actually had to speak to customers. Um, so I, I really didn't enjoy that bit so much as actually making beautiful things. And so Debbie managed the shop, and she would often engage the customers and introduce them to me, and I was like, okay. so And I'd start drawing, designing, because I wasn't a big conversationist. So then came public speaking, uh, many people's worst fear, getting up and uh, saying stuff in front of others. The last place I was going to feel comfortable was in front of people, and I was really quite terrified of that. Now, when I was a student, we were in Sheffield, Sheffield City Polytechnic, now Hallam University, I think, and um, there was a student sit-in, which meant that all these, uh, the fine artists, they were great. They could just occupy the studios all night, you know, smoke joints all night and just just occupy the place. The problem was with occupying the art college was that the jewelry workshops, because all the technicians and lecturers had to leave, was that they had to bolt all the doors. So for a couple of weeks, we were shut out of being able to do any stuff. Absolutely frustrating. So um, I... There was a meeting in the um, refectory, there was a microphone stand set up there, and people got up there, they were incredibly eloquent, they were so relaxed, they commanded the floor and they, they said, you know, education is a right, not a privilege, further education, and we should be demanding more from the government. We were getting a grant, for goodness sake, and I was, it felt to me like the only person who was thinking, further education is a privilege, not a right. And your jolly was shutting me out of being able to you know, get on with this. And eventually, it was so explosive within me, I had to speak. So I got up, and I was shaking like a leaf. And I was all flushed, and I, and I could hardly breathe. And I just said, said this sentence into the mic with great passion. And at the end of that sentence, I stopped and sat down. The reason I stopped was because I forgot to breathe in. I, had, <laughs> I simply ran out of breath. So 35 years ago, we set up this little jewellery shop, and I would make jewellery, but I wasn't making enough money to really sustain us. So I thought, I know what, uh, I met a lecturer who made a lot more money per hour. I thought, hey, I could be a lecturer. I've never got any teacher training or anything like that, but I went to see the principal of South Knotts College of Further Education, took my portfolio and some pieces of my work, and I said, look, I can do stuff. I can make stuff, and I can draw. Give me a job. And uh, this guy looked and he said, "Mm, okay, you can okay, start next week, you can teach YTS hairdressers design. You can teach a drawing class, a life drawing class on a Saturday morning, and you can teach uh, jewellery to another group of people. So um, I thought I'd better find out how you do this. So I went and spoke to a tutor there, and I said, look, what do you do? And she said, the key thing is, because you're about to teach 20 17-year-old girls and you're 23 years old, it's going to be pretty tough. And the first thing they want to do is find out your first name. So just tell them it. Walk in, write on the board, John Wright, and then turn around to the class and say, you may call me Mr. Wright or Sir. And from then, it'll all be kind of plain sailing. Just just roll from there. So I did that. It wasn't all plain sailing. Uh, I think they spotted my weakness. And, you know, I'd be leaning in and to sort of teach them how to draw or you know, how to get that design for a hair thing or whatever. And then suddenly there would be soft body parts being pressed against me from both sides. It was, I mean, sexual harassment laws. I was, I was just absolutely beetroot red most of the time as they took advantage of this totally inexperienced teacher. No one spotted any leadership in me until I was 26. And it was uh, Debbie's father who first said, I think you're called to leadership. And uh, you know, I was going out with this girl, Debbie, um, Debbie Pitches, an outgoing, you know, gregarious, attractive person. And, um, and she would push me, like, you know, getting a jewellery bench, I've managed to find a place underneath, and she found it for me, actually, underneath a walkway. My customers used to have to stamp on the ground and I'd hear them from the boiler room below, and I'd have to walk all the way around up. Anyway, so she said, we need to get a place, we need to get a shop, and we need to... And then she's trying to persuade me to hire an assistant who could polish my work. And I thought, that's crazy, he's not going to do a good job as I can, he or she, so no. So I was like a sole trader, trader, a very, very small-minded businessman, if you like. And um, then we started to get invited to travel around the country, and then around different parts of the world, teaching about ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, before we know it, she'd written seminars. We were asked to just get up and teach a seminar. It's like, okay, great. So she's thought of some things about how to teach a five-step healing model. I just had no idea. And um, so I wasn't at first glance what you call a typical uh, leader or leadership material. There was potential there that I'm very grateful that people spotted. And so we ended up in Anaheim, John Wimber saw something in us, I think probably saw more something in Debbie. He described us as people, people, but I think Debbie was a people person and I was kind of in the, in the wake a little bit there. Um, and then John Mumford who was there and then we came back and so on and, and he gave us a lot of training and so on. But I was, even for a few years after that, concerned that it was it, was it who I was that was giving me these opportunities and leadership or was it who I knew I'd married Debbie Pitches, who was a leader, who was the daughter of a very well-known leader in the Church of England, David Pitches, David and Mary. And uh, they introduced us, as it were, to John and Carol Wimber, who were their very close friends. And so we were in relationship with John and Carol Wimber. And then, you know, doors opened for us. And uh, this was going through. There was an insecurity in me about it. Like, did I really have what it took to do this? And uh, someone called James Ryle, who's since gone to be with the Lord, was very prophetic. And we were in a meeting once, and he pointed at me and he said, John, you are the right man. It's a word play on your surname. The Lord needs you to know you are the right man. He has chosen you. He's equipped you. He's called you to do this thing. And as I debrief with him, he's, I said, you know, I've always thought doors opened. And I've, you know, had all these opportunities. And he said, yeah, doors opened, but doors are simply opportunities. You have to walk through them. You have to do it. You have to be what the opportunity and the invitation is leading towards. So I think it was probably settled at that point. And bit by bit, I've said yes to things. And bit by bit, the Lord has done with me things I could never really have imagined. And I still have to pinch myself as I see when I do look over my shoulder, there was at least a few people there. Each of you has your own story, your own personal story. And I I just really want to encourage you by starting there because, you know, God has put potential in all of us to influence others at whatever level. And the key thing which holds us back, I think, is fear. And it's probably the unwillingness to say yes to the thing which feels like it will stretch us bigger than we can cope with. But, you know, we have a comfort zone, we have a stretch zone. And beyond that, we have a panic zone. It's not a healthy place to live there. But we're supposed to live in that stretch zone pretty much all the time, always feeling out of our depth. Without you, Lord, I cannot do this. But I know that, you know, I can be strong in your strength. Uh, His grace is always going to be sufficient. So I encourage you to say yes as opportunities come, even if you're terrified. We can sometimes have the impression that leadership is uh, a bit more exciting than is the reality. As Daniel touched on this morning, it's not always easy, and there's a lot of pressure um, from time to time, which can be quite demanding. Being leader is not just plain sailing. Leading in the church is often about selflessness, facilitating others to succeed, serving others, and it can often feel like really hard work. Those of you who are small group leaders may well have had the experience often, probably this experience, of having a hectic day, and then at 7.50 p.m. on a small group night, you've got 10 minutes left to kind of tidy the house have a quick row with your significant other, possibly, and then think of something meaningful for the evening. And you've got to get up at 6.30 the next morning, and someone who doesn't actually have to get up until lunchtime decides to stay after everyone else has gone, stay really late to unpack their own problems at length. Or maybe you're running an event and you've poured your life into it and you do so much work behind the scenes to make these things happen, but when you turn up, you find, oh, people didn't really show. The team is low, people you thought you could rely on, you can't, and people have dropped out at the last minute. And there can just be this frustration that, why do people not take responsibility? Um, Some of you, very few of you, I'm afraid, will be old enough to remember what was called an acetate and an overhead projector. (laughs) We were cutting edge when we started Trent Vineyard 23 years ago, because what I hated was that kind of weird shape, wider at the top than the bottom thing, with uh, black writing on transparent. It wasn't transparent. There were hairs and scratches all over it, all that (laughs) dust. So we had white on black, and we taped the screen such that it was parallel. So all that was going on. But we had this simple thing of an A to Z file. So... By first line of a song, it was stored alphabetically. It wasn't hard, so you just take it out. That's a song set. You do that, put it back in the right place. But pretty much every week as worship started, the second song was yet to be found. It was in there somewhere, but there was this panic going on. And um, eventually you'd find last week's set just stuffed at the back after Z. What is that about? Why can people not take responsibility? How hard can it be? And if you think those thoughts, it's probably because you are a leader, willing to take responsibility for things that others perhaps aren't. You finally get the event done, all you seem to get a suggestion of how you could have improved it or complaints that you didn't think of this or that. You can be, as a leader, a visible target. Uh, one of our worship leaders told me many years ago, this woman came up to him and said, um, I was disappointed when I saw it as you leading today because I can't stand you. but I was touched by the last song, and I wanted to apologize for my attitude. (laughs) Just a thought. If you ever feel something like that, there is no need to apologize to the person for your attitude. Repent, apologize to God, and move on. Some people have an issue with authority. Maybe they're carrying baggage relating to an authority figure. Maybe their father, maybe their headmaster, some authority figure. And when they disagree with something you've said or a decision you make, which affects them, they seem to have no problem at aiming their hostility at you. You can become a target, even if you've not done anything wrong. You've either made a decision that they don't like, or you haven't made one they wish you would, or the one you made isn't exactly aligned to their desire. I've had a, I've had a postcard for about 25 years, which, as I was preparing this talk, I, I thought, I wonder where it is, and I found it buried deeply in a drawer. This is it. You may not be able to see the bottom of it. There we go. It's two deer in the woods talking to each other. One has a target on its chest and the other says, bummer of a birthmark, how." <laughs> it's like leaders have a target drawn on their chest. And leading can be lonely, as Daniel said. Maybe you've had to stand alone on a decision. Or you have to be the one to bring correction to someone when you would rather someone, anyone else, could do it. But you're the leader and it's your responsibility. Taking on a leadership role can be a bit like volunteering to be ugly. Being a leader can be stressful. Have a look at these photos of world leaders taken before and after they took office. This is Barack Obama at his first and then his final State of the Union address eight years later. This is Tony Blair in 1997, and again 10 years later. Difference is striking because sometimes leading is hard, it's stressful. This is Chuck, when he started leading his first small group. You get the point. So by now, some of you are beginning to feel thoroughly depressed at the thought of leading. And some of you may have come to this conference today feeling absolutely spent. And you don't need me to tell you that leading is hard because you're living it. Others of you who are not yet leading were feeling all right about one day leading. And uh, until I started speaking just now, I think it's important to acknowledge the realities of leading and to support each other through all those. But what I really want to do this morning is to remind us why we do it. To re-envision us for the thing that God has called us to in whatever context we find ourselves leading in. So today I want to ask and attempt to answer the question, why be a leader when you could have an easy life? I have five reasons. The first one is this. Leaders enable the church to function as God designed it. Every member of a body is of equal value, but each has a different function. And the body would be harmed if any of its parts didn't fulfill those functions. Now, leadership or the structure of leadership within a church could be likened to the skeleton of a body. No more important or valuable than an eye or lung, but without the skeleton, all the other parts of the body would not be able to function. Without the support of the bone structure, which runs throughout the body, the body would sag into a somewhat amorphous mass of flesh, and so the vital organs wouldn't be supported. They wouldn't be protected. Can you imagine the, the, the lungs, the kind of lying on the floor like that with no support, can't breathe. The eyes laying on the floor can't see. They need the structure, the, the physical skeleton, in order to be able to do what they are called to do. And we all have differing roles, as Paul lists in Romans 12, beginning at verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function... If it is to lead, then do it diligently. What Paul is basically saying is whatever God has given you the gifts to do, just do it. God has called us to serve him with the gifts that he has given. And some people have more than one of this on the list, and there are many other lists, and they're not exhaustive anyway. But if you have leadership gifts, the chances are high God intends you to use those gifts in the service of the church. As Paul says, if you're gifted in the area of leadership, do it diligently. And again, Paul, using the analogy of the body being a body, he writes in Ephesians 4, verse 16, from him, Christ, the whole body joined together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Without leaders, churches could not function. You might have a crowd of people. Uh, They might come together on a Sunday, probably wouldn't be as large uh, a number, but uh, it wouldn't be a church, it wouldn't be a church as we understand and God understands the church to be. Church is more than just gathering a bunch of people, it's people being pastored and relationally connected and supported and envisioned and equipped and discipled and growing and released in using their gifts in a multitude of ways. And you leaders enable that to happen. It's probably true to say that alongside Jesus building his church, the future of the church in Scotland depends significantly on those entrusted with the leadership. Our churches are full of gifted, talented, and willing people. All that potential to impact the world, to be leveraged, encouraged, and developed by leaders. So that's the first point. Without leaders, the church wouldn't function as God designed it. Secondly, leading in God's church is a precious calling. And sometimes as we go through some of the things Daniel was referring to and the things I have here, you can begin, if you're not careful as a leader, to love ministry but just hate people. (laughs) Or if not hate them, that's too strong, maybe to be irritated by them and, and not see the preciousness of the calling because we're just like, oh, for goodness sake. Do I have to? How long must I put up with you, Jesus said, with his disciples? And sometimes, I don't know whether you've ever found yourself thinking those thoughts. Hopefully, they're fleeting if you have. But it's a precious calling. As Paul says to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20 and verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. He uses the words overseers, shepherds, but whatever the leadership role, the point he's making in this text is how precious the church is. In his letter to that same church, he talks about the redemption of those who are God's possession. We and the people we serve are God's possession, which he bought, he purchased with his own blood. The value of something is determined by the amount that someone is willing to pay for it. I'm sure many of you will have watched the Antiques Roadshow when someone brings something in to be appraised and they think, oh, it's worth that, that's amazing. Didn't really think it was worth anything. Perhaps you saw this one, this paperweight that had sat on a teacher's desk in St. Ives for years. No one thought anything of it, but on a whim he took it to the Roadshow, only to find that it was an original sculpture by Barbara Hepworth valued at 750 not pounds, £1,000 pounds. Or what about this? Terry Nourish had this vase for years and thought nothing of it. He, it had actually served as a makeshift goalpost for his children's football games. And he discovered on the program that it's a late 19th century French piece that then sold for 668,000 pounds. I suspect that paperweight will no longer just be left on a desk in a teacher's study. The vase will never again be used as a goalpost. Both items are treated differently because they are valued differently, because of the amount that someone is willing to pay. There is nothing more precious, is there, than God's blood. And therefore, the church is the most precious thing in the universe. Jesus is looking forward to the marriage supper of the lamb when he gets to enjoy his bride. He's passionate about her. God is excited about her. And as leaders, we do a task which is very close to God's heart. Thirdly, leadership multiplies what can be achieved. If you look back in Exodus 18, we find Moses is leading the Israelites uh, in the desert. There are a lot of them, vast numbers of them. And he ends up pretty much full-time judging their disputes. And so we read in verse 13 there, the next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening in the queue. Just stood around waiting on the man of God to do their case. It's a picture of the way a lot of churches work. One or two absolutely shattered leaders at the center of it, and a bunch of watchers wondering why their needs are not getting met and why things aren't working better. And eventually, Moses' father-in-law steps in in verse 17. He says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing isn't good. You and the people with you will certainly weigh yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Moses could see that he was wearing himself out and that people's needs were not being met. Neither's a good thing. Certainly in church leadership, you want not to have the leader worn out and you want the needs of the people to be met. And so he suggests that Moses recruit some people to support him so that he can delegate work to them. And he says, just do the tricky cases. Let the smaller ones be handled by others and let the hard things come to you. Mobilizing others to lead is crucial. John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement, said this For the church that will still be growing 10 years from now, leadership development is the core issue. The single most important factor preventing growth, he said, in the church today is the inability to identify, recruit, train, deploy, monitor, and nurture leaders and workers. So it's the case for leaders being multiplied and the same applies to people serving. The problem with many churches is that they operate a bit like a football match where you've got 22 people desperately in need of a rest being watched by thousands of people desperately in need of some exercise. <laughs> we want the opposite. We believe everyone gets to play. And that's our experience of our own church. I'm sure it is for you. We've been able to grow areas of ministry because we've been able to release leaders to run with ideas and mobilize people in using their gifts. And as I look around this room today, I can see that you also have been able to mobilize leaders who carry the vision of building communities of faith which contribute to the transformation of this nation of Scotland. And it's you, the leaders, who are absolutely crucial to that. That would be impossible without leaders, John Maxwell uses this chart to illustrate, illustrate this principle. The bottom axis is about success dedication. And the vertical axis is leadership ability. So you can have a person who has level 8 out of 10 dedication to and success at a particular thing. But their effectiveness massively increases. And in the area, you can see that the graph is filled in in gray massively increases as their leadership ability increases. As we grow in leadership, we multiply what we are able to do. And the multiplication is not about just having more people involved in leading and thus spreading the load. It also broadens the ministry. Different leaders bring different skills. They bring different perspectives. They may be able to see something that you can't or suggest things that you haven't thought of. So the richness of diversity, don't ever try and build a team of clones who see things the way you do. Find people who disagree on nearly everything, as long as they're good, godly leaders, and you'll have a much richer mix. You know, Debbie and I, we're total opposites on Myers-Briggs and every other personality profile test, so we sometimes ding-dong a little bit in the process of forging things, but, you know, swords and stuff are really quite strong when they're forged. They're heated up and bang, bang, bang. You know, The best decisions are forged, Not like, oh, that's self-evident, that's obvious, and a bunch of people who think alike just say yes to something. A few years ago, it was um, 2012, I was on holiday with Debbie, and uh, I think it was Tunisia. And I went for a walk along the beach. And I noticed as I was walking, there was a small pool of water. It was probably about two or three meters away from where the sea, sea was coming up to. And this was like a little small lake, like a pond. It seemed to be filled by maybe a leaky pipe that was sitting in there. And I wondered what it would take to join these two bodies of water. Just kind of nothing to do on holiday, feeling a bit mischievous. I wonder what it would take. And uh, so I picked up this, a piece of sea-worn roof tile and I began to draw a line in the sand between the pool and the sea. And uh, I dragged it across and I made a channel just a few inches wide and a few inches deep. And then the fresh water followed my lead. And mildly amused, you know, it gently um, flowed along this channel that i had carved into the sea. And mildly amused, I continued my walk along the beach. About half an hour later on my return journey, I passed that spot on my way back and I was shocked to find what had happened. My actions had been amplified. I'd made a path and the water had followed. And my little groove, a few inches deep and wide, was now huge. And I took this picture of the scene, uh, regretting I hadn't thought to photograph the little channel that I had dug earlier, but the water had carved its way through the sandbank and was now up to about 10 feet across, at its widest point, and had created cliffs on the sides of that, approaching a foot deep. What had been an impenetrable sandbank, an obstacle, constraining the fresh water, a barrier to its advance, was removed. And the Lord often speaks to me through the natural things in the invisible. And as I walk back to the hotel, I talk to the Lord about it, and I sense the Lord speaking to me about leadership. Where As a leader, there are times when I need to lead the way, to put my efforts into digging a channel through what looks like a pretty impenetrable obstacle And then, by the grace of God, others follow, and the effect is multiplied, and extraordinary things I never could have imagined begin to happen. And as I was walking along there, I reflected on what had recently happened in our church's journey and what was actually currently happening at that moment on our site. Over the years, our church had given uh, large amounts of money, many millions of pounds, to enable us to buy land and to build our initial warehouse and then... um, then to buy more land and expand it, and then to create a youth center. And Seven months before walking on that beach, I'd cast the vision to redevelop another building on our site to house the Arches, which is our main ministry to the poor. So a 25,000 square foot building, and uh, also fit, it, fit out the cafe. And again, the church responded by giving about another million pounds. And as I walked on that beach, these building projects were still a couple of months away from being completed. The obstacles to those church expansion projects were huge. Industrial land, planning permission, please, no. And so we'd had a lot of battles over the years trying to get change of use, which we, we did actually get. Raising the money, how do you ask people when you're not aware of any wealthy people in the church to give millions of pounds? Uh, you know, that takes um, some effort. And then fund, finding project managers who can actually coordinate all that Building work and stuff to happen. And as the leader of, of this expansion, all I had was a God given vision and a little sea worn roof tile. I couldn't make it happen. My role was to pray, take counsel from others, discern with Debbie where God was leading, and then to take what little I had in my hand and mark out a route, a direction to do my part and invite others to follow. And what happened was absolutely amazing. Whatever God asks you to lead, however large or small, this principle's at work. When you lead, you go where you want other people to follow. We were the first people who gave financially to all those building expansions. And as others join you, your efforts are multiplied. And so I hope this little visual image stays with you as you find yourself sometimes seeing what God is wanting to happen and feeling somewhat alone as you progress in that direction. When you get weary and you wonder whether it's going to be worth all your hard work, you're only required to do your part. And as others follow, things will be achieved you never could have imagined. When you arrived to this conference yesterday and you saw loads of people working away and welcoming on the doors and these chairs were laid out beautifully and the band was fully rehearsed and so on, you all know that doesn't just happen automatically, like it might... In an ant colony, something happens where all the ants know what their job is, and it just happens. But humans don't work that way. There is always someone at the centre of it all, leading. At the centre of this feat of teamwork were one or two leaders with clipboards and a plan, and the people skills and the gifts to coordinate it. I met Jill. Is it Jill last night? Yeah. yeah, who made it all happen. And thanks to Jill. So we'll give her a round of applause. Okay, number four, leadership refines us. Of course, part of our leading is leveraging our gifts for the building up of the church, but God is also interested in changing us, conforming us to the likeness of his son. We are the project. And I've experienced this personally, and as I'm sure many of you have, you know, looking back, I can't believe what he's done and how he's shaped me and and so on. And if he'd shown me all the things he would do when I first started out, I probably would have run a mile but he knew best you know one step at a time john is okay one step i just want you to take this step and it's going to stretch you but you'll change and you'll find actually it gets easier over time it's stretching to lead and uh, all that we do in leading stretches us it grows us if you take a balloon out of a pack it's about that big flat and you puff into it until it's about the size of a tennis ball it'll be quite firm because it's quite stretched if you put some more puffs into it and it gets to be this big, then you know, it's even more stretched. But if you just let a bit of air out, it becomes relatively soft again. And then you can blow even more in. And um, A balloon that's been blown up full size, really, really stretched, when it's a day or two old, will still be large, but it'll be soft again. it actually be relaxed again. It can never return to being small, like it was when it started being stretched, blown up. And like a balloon, we are stretched through leading, which means that we become bigger. We become more effective. We are enabled to touch the lives for good for many more people. Our ministry is extended in its scope and its extent and in its quality. Everything for him, for his glory, for the extension of his kingdom. It's not about us, but we're the project, and we get stretched in the doing of it. And, you know, God has an agenda to grow and develop us as people through leading. And sometimes I think he chooses. Um, I'm going to give you this leadership responsibility because I really, you really need to grow in some areas. And so I'm going to put you under pressure there so that I can do this. So leadership teaches us patience because we have to work with other people. And sometimes people don't always behave. Leadership teaches us to pray. Every time we try something new or step out and take a risk, we pray in a way we don't normally do. These building projects, you know, that's where I learned to pray, basically. It's like, oh my goodness, how much? No way. Leadership teaches us humility. It knocks the stuffing out of us sometimes when people criticize us and things don't work out. Every time we fail, it reminds us that his strength is perfected in our weakness. And leadership teaches us how to get into the Bible. When we're making leadership decisions, having tricky conversations, we need to be sure of the direction that we're leading people in, so we probably read the Bible more than if we weren't a leader. So we are refined in the process. And lastly, number five, leadership is rewarding. As I mentioned earlier, leadership is not just one form of service, and like all the others, uh, ways that we might serve the Lord, we will be rewarded for what we do, as Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6, verse 7, serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. So what we pour our lives into in the service of God will affect our reward, our experience of eternity. There is reward awaiting us. But it can also be incredibly rewarding in the present, seeing God change lives, people grow in their leadership, partnering with God in what he's doing is an incredible thing. As you lead people, as you care for them, over time, amazing things happen. If you were to lead a small group, you'll find there'll be those in your group who when they came to you were not in a good place. And um, over time, perhaps they were very limited in their walk with God, perhaps they were very socially awkward, perhaps they were very broken, perhaps they just didn't believe in themselves at all. And over time, you see as you invest in them, they blossom, they flourish, they grow, and they change. And over time, if you lead long enough, there'll be a lot of people who, if they had never been led by you, would not have blossomed in the way that they have under your leadership. And it's also fulfilling to lead and see your efforts multiplied. You've got a sense of the direction you believe God wants something to go. You involve others and before your eyes, things are achieved, which you could never have done alone, as I said, and which you may have never thought possible. And what we do is not just for now. It has eternal consequences. One of the things I'm most looking forward to is, is uh, meeting a bunch of people I've never met, who've never seen me, met me, and I've never met, who are there because I did say yes. Yes there will be a lot of people in heaven who would perhaps not have been there if you weren't leading in the way that you are. That is very rewarding. Some years ago, I was walking by the River Trent, and again, this is the Lord speaking in the natural. Uh, Trent is the river after which our church is named, and it was a blue sky, there was no wind. But as I crossed the footbridge, I noticed that the river was swirling around like the surface of a kind of boiling cauldron and the water was brown, the river running at an incredible pace, and the river was right up There's steps on the side of the River Trent. Normally, it's about seven or eight steps, six or seven steps, and there was only two visible, so it was really running in flood. And as I walked towards Trent Bridge, I saw a couple of mallard ducks paddling against the stream. They should have just got out and walked. would have been an awful lot faster, but. A drake and his girlfriend are paddling against the stream. And this drake had a grey body, looked like this, a brown chest, and then a white stripe, like a little clerical dog collar, and a fluorescent green head. And you know a, a ship has a bow wave as it cuts through the water. Well, this drake had a bow wave which came above the white stripe, almost up to its chin. It was just Its beak was kind of just on the, off the surface of the water. And it was paddling with all its energy, furiously, and yet it was going nowhere. It did move upstream a little bit, about, I reckon, a tenth of a mile an hour. I just watched him and his girlfriend or wife. I didn't know their marital status, but a drake and and his uh, female companion. And yet, they kept on going. They just kept on going. Other times, I've seen ducks going downstream. When the current is fast, it's amazing. It's effortless. They're traveling at high speed. Wind in their feathers. It's like everything's awesome. In leading in the church, and indeed in any arena, there are times when we're just cruising with the water, we're going downstream, it's very simple and easy, there's a great sense of momentum, people are joining our group, They're coming. our rotor is like bulging with people, really capable people, there's fruitfulness, there's team members growing in leaps and bounds. And then there are other times when although we feel we are paddling really hard, we feel we're just getting nowhere at all and maybe you are here today and you feel a bit like that paradox paddling hard but feeling like you're really not getting anywhere you really are struggling perhaps perhaps the area that you're leading is going through a difficult time at the moment or you are having some really tough decisions to make or or maybe your life outside of leadership is hard and leaving you with very little physical and emotional energy to lead from and maybe the question you've been asking is exactly that one which I began with. Why should I lead when I could have an easy life? Why be a leader? Why am I doing this? And if any of those things are true of you, there'll be an opportunity as we go into a ministry time to have someone pray for you. But I believe there's an invitation for us all of today to be reminded of why we do this. Why we've taken this unglamorous option to serve as leaders in God's church. To be re-envisioned to be part of enabling the church to function as God designed it and without leaders it could not function. To remind ourselves of the precious calling that leadership is to serve and lead in God's church. God's possession purchased with his own blood. To be inspired by the way that leadership multiplies the impact that the church can have on our cities, our neighborhoods, transforming this nation. And I really would ask you not to forget this little visual thing when you're thinking, what am I doing? My efforts are not. Just keep going, one foot in front of the other. Keep on going. And to reflect on the ways that leadership has grown us personally, uncovering the gifts we didn't realize we had or overcoming that challenge we thought was insurmountable. And to remind ourselves of the fruit that we have seen through our leadership, the lives changed, people meeting Jesus and growing his disciples, and the eternal reward that that entails. As challenging as leadership can feel sometimes i cannot imagine a more rewarding and fruitful way to spend my life amen so we got plan